ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Wednesday, September 22nd, I'm Aram Layton. He's Jeff Conine. This is Outside the Box with Jeff Conine, and we're doing something new today. Today, we are doing a mailbag. I've sifted through the questions for you. We've got some staff questions. We've got some questions from listeners. Uh, We've got a little bit of everything, Uh, some really good ones, some fun ones, and everything in between, so I'm excited to ask you about those. A couple of talking points, though, before we get into the questions And we have to start with what happened in San Diego, which I think has been overblown and I'm contributing to it by making you talk about it. But (laughs) the reason why I'm doing that is because I want you to explain a little bit of the context of what it's like to be a player uh, on a team that's free falling a little bit and what it's like to, to try to keep everybody intact and why what it looks like on the outside could be different than what it looks like in the inside. Uh, For those who might not know, uh, it was a little bit of a dispute between Fernando Tatis Jr. And of course, Manny Machado. And it was caught on film, which is really the only reason why we're hearing about this thing. And a lot of people were saying this doesn't look good. What are your takeaways from what you saw? Um, I don't think, well, when you look at the overall picture for the San Diego Padres, nothing is really good right now in that clubhouse because they were far and away the third best team in the national league. And they were all uh, talking about the national league West. And we got the giants that's, that have been in, sitting on top of that division for the entire season. Uh, then you got the Dodgers, obviously who went through a really uh, rough stretch mid season and everyone was questioning on their massive payroll and if their personnel decisions were right, but obviously they righted the ship and they are now one game behind the San Francisco giants for the lead in that division. But then you had those San Diego Padres who were, we thought everybody thought that it was going to be Dodgers Padres, one game playoff to see who went on into the playoffs to take on the giants. Well, that has changed drastically. And you've seen that the San Diego Padres have had a free fall from that position that we talked about shoot, just a month and a half ago. We, we were talking about how good the Padres were and uh, would they overtake the Dodgers as in that number one spot in the wild card? And now they're not even in the picture anymore. So everything is imploded in that clubhouse. So tensions are high. There's been a lot of losing going on and that just creates a tension filled environment for all the players. When you've got expectations like that, when you spend a ton of money, uh, you've got some star players, you've got star power in that clubhouse. When it falls apart like that, nothing really good is happening. What we saw last night, I think it was just a boil over of this whole situation over the last month and a half and tensions are high and uh, losing sucks. So that just kind of reared its head last night. Of course, you got cell phone cameras everywhere and a fan just happened to have his cell phone out kind of filming this whole exchange between Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis. And I didn't take it as that bad a thing. I thought that 
Look, Tatis has been, you know, uh, was the odds on favorite to win the NFL MVP like a runaway uh, a month ago. Now Bryce Harper has come charging hard in that discussion. And I think it's kind of flipped the tables where now more attention has been on Bryce Harper than Fernando Tatis. He's had injuries. He's had a position change. Uh, There's a lot going on for Fernando Tatis. He's junior world this year as far as being a baseball player. So I think you've seen that kind of boil over a little bit. Uh, he got a bad call, uh, was arguing when he shouldn't have been arguing. And I think Manny Machado just stepped in and said, listen, bro, we need you on the field. We need you right now on the field. Uh, we need your leadership, which he's only a second year player. I think yeah. people forget about that. Fernando Tatis Jr. has 22. only been in the league two years. He hasn't even had two full seasons in the big league. So Manny Machado, I thought, was a veteran player coming in and, and kind of slapping the rookie around a little bit, saying, listen, you can't act like that. This is not about you. There is a team here that relies on you to provide leadership because you are arguably the best player in the National League right now. So I think uh, I did not take that as a bad thing at all. I thought Manny, Manny Machado was flexing that veteran muscle, which a lot of clubhouses are lacking right now. A lot of dugouts are lacking. Uh, we need more of that in baseball right now. We need leaders. We need veterans to take over and teach the rookies how to play the game, not only on on the field, but in the clubhouse. We needed them to teach them how to lead. So um, I didn't see it was a bad thing at all. And I'm, I'm back in Machado on this one. Yeah. And what I really thought was interesting, there was a few things to unpack on the Machado side. And I'm glad you brought that up. One, it's that nobody was holding back Manny Machado. And if you remember like the Bryce Harper, Jonathan Papelbon situation, where it looked like they were going to go to blows, both of them had to be held back. Nobody was worried about Machado. They looked at it, I think, the same way you did, which this was just him talking almost like to his younger brother trying to just get his mind right. The interesting thing about that as well is that Manny Machado was that flashy 22-year-old phenom as well. And when you think about it from that context, he has come a long way also. People couldn't stand Machado. that, And some people still have their, their feelings one way or another. But I think what you say is important here. Machado's now about to turn 30, 28, 29 years old. And he's tired of losing. He was on some bad Orioles teams. He had a chance to play for half a season with the Dodgers. He's had some competitive spots here with the Padres, but it's been weird the last year and a half, obviously. He wants to win. And I think when you look at it from that lens, I think he probably sees a little bit of himself in Tatis right now as that young player that's polarizing, that uh, goes against the grain. Uh, But it doesn't mean that that comes at the expense of winning or that comes at the uh, expense of it being about the team. Because the one thing that was audible was it's not about you. It's not about you. That's what Machado kept saying to him. And I just found that very interesting to kind of wrap a bow on this, though, on, on the situation in general. Things like that happen, would you say, a lot more than people think in a clubhouse and they don't linger maybe as much as you'd think when it's something like like that? Or is it something that was was somewhat more of a rarity, uh, even though we don't think it's too big of a deal. No, we, we saw it obviously because it got caught on camera by a fan and it, it bubble, um, kind of bubbled over into the dugout where uh, anybody that's got the great seats uh, down low, they can kind of look into that dugout and see what's going on. But uh, it happens more than you think. Um, a lot of it does happen behind closed doors in the clubhouse. And that's where it should happen is where the clubhouse should police itself. The players are going to have the most impact on each other as far as how to act on the baseball field, how to come together as a team. And when somebody isn't doing that, especially a star player, one of the veterans should speak out and, and make them 
accountable for their actions and teach them how to lead by example. And I think that's what Machado was doing at, the, at that point. Um, you know, I, I had it on some teams where back in the day we didn't have cell phone cameras and, and a lot of the stuff wasn't caught on camera, but it still happened. It just didn't uh, make the news as much, but you know, we had a second baseman when I was with the Orioles and, and the guy loved arguing about balls and strikes a lot of times. And, and one day he got thrown out of the game and it was early in the game. And it's not like we were contending for a spot or anything like that, but we're all competitors and we needed this guy on the field. And uh, I kind of lost it on him when I got in the dugout or I, after the game, I'm like, dude, we need you. You can't think about yourself at that moment and argue balls and strikes. And now you put our team in jeopardy for a win. You put everybody in jeopardy because we've got to put somebody else out there. That's not as good as you. So, you know, you got to think about team first a lot of times and bite your tongue when you, Hey, we're all competitors. We want to argue balls and strikes, especially when the bad calls made and, and it affects our game and our at bat. But when you step back and look at the whole picture, I can't get thrown out of this game because it affects our chances of winning. Well, and how many times in your baseball career did you change the umpire's mind? Zero. Exactly. They never changed their mind. They're like, you know, oh, you know what? Time out, Jeff. Oh, you're right. You're right. Let's, I'm going to I'm gonna flip this around. You're totally right. I, I, I didn't mean to call that a strike or, or that you're absolutely right. You were safe. Let's redo this whole thing. No, it's never going to happen. And, so, and especially nowadays when I know balls and strikes is different, but you can challenge calls and stuff. So I know balls and strikes, it's still going to be one of those situations where you, you can't win, but you can't win. So you can only lose. So why put yourself in a position to lose? How, how many times did you get tossed in your career? Do you know? That should have been a trivia question for you. Oh, you know it. One. One singular time as you hold up one finger. One time. What was it? I didn't even I didn't even plan for this, but now, uh, now I'm excited. No, it was it was balls and strikes. Um I was with the Marlins and Jack McKean was our manager and there was an umpire that uh, I didn't think too fondly of. And uh, he called me out on something that I thought was blatantly the other way. Like it was a ball that I thought was a ball big time and he called it a strike. <clears throat> so I let him know about it. And whenever you address an umpire and I've always been, I was always very good about that my entire career. I, I kind of phrased it in a way that, mm -hmm. Like, yeah, you know what is, is, is that, that as, as far, far as, as it goes gets? or, yeah. you know, he knew that I was asking if it was a ball or a strike and we'd have a little conversation about it. But this one, I let him have it. And um, I got I got right because as soon as you say you or you are. Oh, yeah. They got the hand up already. And I, I told him he was horseshit. And as soon as I said that, <laughs> the arm went up and I was out of the game and I got my piece in and. And, and Jack McKeon came out there and, and he was trying to raise hell, trying to kind of back me up a little bit like, what, what the hell, what's going on? And, you know, he's, he's like, what did he say? And I said, Jack, I said, he sucks. And he does. And I, you know, and Jack couldn't, he looked at me, he's like, oh, all right. Well, if you said that, I got nothing to argue about. We both walked back to the dugout and that was it. So that's the only time I've ever gotten thrown out. And Jack was like the, the, it seemed like the ultimate players, players coach, right? Oh, he would fight tooth and nail for you. He'd go out there and go to, go to blows for you as a manager. He'd back you up. But I told him, you know what? Don't waste your breath. Uh, this is what I said. I deserve it. Let's walk back to the dugout. I'm surprised it was only one. I, not because I would think you would get tossed very often, just 17 years in the bigs and obviously minors as well. It's 20 years of pro baseball. That's some pretty good uh, self-control there. Your, your son too. I've, I've seen, I watch Griffin's games, you know, all the time. And uh, the zones in the minors are heinous. 
They're they're terrible. And I I've seen him get rung up on some absurd calls. He takes them really well. He doesn't say a word. He just walks. He just walks, which is surprising knowing the way he is. He'll say something like under his breath really subtly, which I think he probably still does, but that's it. Um, but I, I'm impressed with Griff too, because I think I'd get tossed on that stuff. And, and I feel like I have pretty good self-control, but there's a level too, especially where when you're going through a slump and all the, all the things cross at the right time, it, it just makes it so much harder. And I know we talked about that a lot in the last episode, but we're going to get to some of the questions that we have for you. But before that, I want to get to the Jersey, which I can only see the collar right now and it's all white. So there's no way I'm going to know what team it is, but what team are we rocking? And then I'll guess the player dropping it down. Okay. We got Dodgers Dodgers on here. Oh man. And that's, that's a Jersey that I can't guess the timeline. It's the same forever. So what, what your timeline of playing, I'm assuming. No. After before. Uh, yeah. Slightly after me, slightly after you and, and no longer playing. Yeah. Still playing. Still playing. Yep. I got this signed um, while I was with the Marlins. So working in the front office. Okay. Got it signed when you were with the Marlins. No longer playing Dodgers. Nope. So He's still playing. I said, he was I mean, sorry, playing. sorry. Still playing. Excuse me. Excuse me. So mm, Dodgers guy. That's, that's going to be a hard one. There's so many different things. I'm going to go Clayton Kershaw. Got it. Let's go. That's awesome. He's yeah. back. He's off the IL. I don't know if you timed that on purpose. That is a sweet Jersey. Well, that is I, awesome. I did time it because of that. And I just want to talk briefly about, cause I knew we talked uh, a little bit coming down to the wire here and how, you know, Clayton Kershaw for me has arguably had the best seven year stretch in baseball history, as far as a pitcher is concerned. And he's battled injuries a lot in the last five, six years. He hasn't made over 30 starts in the last five, six years. Um, and when you look at his body of work, I think this year he's got an ERA over three, which is the first time since his rookie season that he's had an ERA above three, which is absurd to say, even given all the problems, the health problems that he's had, uh, he still is one of the most dominant forces in the game. And I think when you look at him coming back now with the Dodgers, that kind of beefs up their staff. Uh, you know, I know he's not known to have a great record in the postseason, but Clayton Kershaw uh, is still a dominant figure uh, in that rotation. And I think that brings them a lot of momentum and a lot of confidence going into the postseason. Am I crazy for, I would still hand him the ball in any spot in the postseason. Is that nuts? Because I know we've, we've seen him have that, somewhat of an implosion in some occasions in the postseason. I think a lot of it is overblown. And I think a lot of it is because he's, he set the bar so high for himself that we're, we're pitting him against regular season, Clayton Kershaw. I love all the things you said. I would still hand him the ball in any situation in the, in the postseason. If, if, if I lose because of Clayton Kershaw, I'll lose because of Clayton Kershaw. And then that's happened now a few times for the Dodgers. It has. And you know, it's, it's hard to explain uh, when you see a picture of his caliber, not succeed like you're used to seeing him succeed in, in during the in the regular season like you said i mean he's put up you know video game type numbers that uh, no one has come close to um and then in the postseason when he's normal 
he's had a few normal star starts and the Dodgers lose. It's like, Oh my God, Clayton Kershaw has absolutely imploded. When you look at his numbers, I mean, they're not horrid. It's not, yeah, like you'd think they were like the worst thing ever Four one nine ERA, which, you know, is well off. Like you said, he's only had one season or this would be a second season above three, uh, but 207 strikeouts, 189 innings. The whip is just barely over one. I mean, this is still a guy that would be in any rotation at his worst in the postseason, but it's Clayton Kershaw. Exactly. And it, the bar is set incredibly high. And, um, you know, it's just a, a joy to watch him pitch, to watch him work. I love the that way he, he handles himself on the mound. Um, and I think he's a stand-up guy on that clubhouse. I think he's a stand-up guy in the community. Just uh, a good guy all around that uh, you'd like your son to emulate if he's a big leaguer. Absolutely. And probably not face uh, when you have to see that curveball left on left. I don't think that would be too fun uh, from Kershaw, even at this point in his career. And it, the, you mentioned the ERA this year, the whip, though, still under one, which is just really impressive. And it, it feels like we've barely seen Kershaw pitch this year, but he's still amassed over 115 innings, which is you know, a decent body of work, given how long he's been out for. He's still made uh, 20 starts. He'll probably finish the year with two more starts under his belt. And he's still a viable, viable arm. And, and I'm interested to see how he continues. I mean, he, he looks like he's still going to hit 200 wins, which, you know, 200 is the new 300, I think. And and John Lester just hit that threshold or is about to hit that threshold as well. Um, phenomenal career. I'm glad I had no idea you were going to bring out Kershaw. I love that he was able to somewhat rectify that narrative last year. It's unfortunate that it happened in a postseason that, you know, we don't really consider the same as other postseasons. But if there's one silver lining out of that whole thing, I was really damn happy for Clayton Kershaw, no matter how much stock you put into last year's uh, World Series. Yeah, postseason play, um, you know, you root for a guy like that, that, you know, is a gamer, you know, that uh, is a great guy in the community, in the clubhouse. And what do you uh, make it out to be, though? Is it just the pressure of the of the moment? Is it a little bit of bad luck? I mean, you know what? I think everyone's senses are heightened in the in the postseason and every pitch means a lot more in the postseason. But you're facing hitters that it means a lot to them, too. So they might be concentrating that much more when they're facing a guy like Kershaw. And uh, I think it hasn't really been an implosion, like we've said, but he's given up big hits and big situations uh, with home runs and, and things like that, that kind of make that ERA more inflated than, than you might think. Um, and like you said, he's still got a whip under one, which is, yeah. is crazy. When you look at a pitcher's most vital stat to me is that whip. That's walks and hitting, hits per innings pitched. And basically yeah. how many guys get on base during the course of a game? What's more and important his than career that? is like one, which yeah. is insane. Yeah, it's 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 absurd. And you talk about the seven year stretch of Kershaw having that up right now. Those seven years combined, 118 and 41 was his record with a ridiculous point nine or point nine one whip and a two one ERA in seven full seasons. You're just we're never going to see that again. And I just three, don't think three Cy Youngs, two second places, an MVP. And- an MVP. I mean, I know how you feel about that, but an MVP. Yep. And uh, I mean, amazing. And now we're looking at your guy Scherzer, who might be uh, winning that Cy Young this year. I don't know the last time. I don't know if there's something that comes to your mind of a time where a guy was traded during the season. I know you brought up the stat about Willie Adamas, how we haven't seen somebody get traded during the season to win MVP. I'm sure it's happened with Cy Young. I can't think of it. I couldn't find it. Um, I want to know. I want to say be- maybe. Um, 
the big unit when he went to the went to the went to the Astros midseason, I think. Was that when um did he go to the uh, somebody went? That's a good trivia question, though. And I, by the way, we're gonna be doing some just baseball trivia in the offseason. And uh we'll have we'll have it's gonna be among the staff, and then we're gonna have some big uh guests type of uh competitions. You're gonna mop the floor with us if you come on that, but it'll be fun. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. This would be a good trivia question. I'm assuming that it was, Oh, he did not win the year he was traded to Houston. He won the year after that. So, but when he went to Houston, Randy Johnson, 10 and one with a 1.280 RA. Um, and what's interesting about that is it's very similar to what we're seeing from Scherzer. He's seven and oh, since the trade and nine starts and, uh, with an ERA below one. Uh, so talk about a gamer there, just absolutely ridiculous. Um, let's get into these questions because yes. there are some Wait. good ones for you. I'm going to start with, uh, one that I actually thought was really interesting and I was surprised I haven't gotten to this with you yet, but, uh, the question was playing 17 years. How were you able to stay on the field and, and what was your routine or some of the uh, maybe just absolute musts that you had uh, to be able to stay on the field? Like, what do you attribute it to uh, other than maybe a little bit of luck of, of course that's involved in anything. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a little luck um, involved, but I think overall it's just about being smart and taking care of yourself. And um, you know, I was never, uh, you know, I played first base, uh, I played left field, um, up the middle guys, I think have a, a tendency to, to have a little bit more aggressive style of play. So they're going to possibly get injured more, but um, you know what? It's interesting. Cause I was, I was an extremely tight individual. Like my hand, everything was really, really tight. My joints, um, I it was very inflexible and a lot of people sometimes equate that to injuries, to pulls and a lot of pull muscles and joint injuries and, I had none of that. I had one bad uh, pull in a hamstring that kept me out for uh, seven weeks. And I was actually, it was in Philadelphia. I'm, I hit a ball in the gap and I'm going into hard to second base. And I'm telling myself that if the fielder bobbles it or mishandles it at all, I'm going for third, I'm going for third. So I'm watching him, watching him. And sure enough, he bobbled it when he went to pick it up. And when I started my lean going into second base, I was off. I was too far inside the line. So I had to reach out with my right foot to hit the bag. And when I was going around, I I almost fell down and I pulled up my hand. I pulled up my leg so hard as not to fall that I ended up popping my hamstring. So I felt it, it, you know, it it slammed me pretty hard. I made it to third base, but I I literally just start, I called timeout and walked off the field because I knew that I had popped it really bad. And sure enough, I missed 42 games that year because of that. But, you know, other than that, I, I really didn't, um, I think I was only in the deal maybe one or two other times in my whole career. Um, I just managed things well, you know, and if there was a Nick or a, uh, you know, you're always straining a little something or you might foul some ball off your foot or, you know, you get it taken care of. And I did that in my own way. And I was able to keep under that threshold of, you know, if you go hundred percent, you might pull something. If you go 95%, you can still, go out there and and play a good game of baseball. And I think I did that well. I think it's funny you bring that up as someone who has to, you know, cover the Marlins, watch a lot of Marlins games, jazz chisel, explosive athlete, but he was banged up all year because he only knows a hundred percent. 
And I think the Marlins, they had said they're, they're talking to him like, all right, we love the way you play. He, he takes the extra bag. He does all those little things, but he's getting banged up. If you're going hundred miles an hour all the time, you, know, you want to play hard. It, that, that's got to be a difficult balance to strike of playing hard, but also being aware of, Hey, I need to be on the field every single day, 162 games a year. That's a tough juggle. <laughs> It is a tough juggle. I mean, it's a, it's an extremely long season. 162 games is a stinking marathon, you know? So that's when you really have to be smart about, you know, yes, I want you, I want to play hundred percent every single game that I can, but if I'm not, I want to be able to dial it back enough where I'm still effective on the field while being able to stay on the field. You know, I, my bat does me no good or my, my bat does me no, the team no good. If I'm sitting on the bench nursing an injury that if I could have managed a little better, I'm still in the lineup and I'm still getting hits. So uh, it's a fine line. It's a fine line to, to walk. Another one. Um, honestly, I, I know the answer to this question before, but now it's it's interesting. Um, you're obviously coaching at FIU now, and uh, you're just starting that, and I'm sure you have plans to do that for a while. But long term, do you ever have any aspirations uh, to coach beyond that and, and do anything else down the line? Um, not like Bob Nightingale said a while back, straight <laughs> to the big leagues. But is that something that ever crosses your mind now that your kids are all grown up? Well, you know, it was uh, the question was posed to me often since I retired, you know, would I go into coaching and be a hitting coach or a manager or any something like that in the in professional baseball and it's always been no because uh like you said, I had kids at an age where um I got to see a lot of stuff. I got to see my, you know, daughter graduate and I saw uh, high school lacrosse games and I saw high school baseball games and track meets and um, I saw college graduations and high school graduations and all this stuff that as a parent, you get one shot to see, you get one shot to look at. Um, now that, like you said, the kids are grown and they're, they're doing their own thing. And um, I still don't really have the desire right now to go into pro ball and spend that kind of time uh, and travel uh, away from home. I just don't have the desire right now. I, I'm really happy where I'm at at FIU. I, I got a short commute down um, to the turnpike there. and I'm at school in 35 minutes and just being able to get these kids young at, right out of high school and being able to talk shop with them. And uh, it's so refreshing to see their quest for knowledge and their thirst for learning and to be able to teach them a game of baseball and, and mold them into gamers, you know, and, and really try to help a program out is uh, I couldn't be happy where I'm at right now. Yeah, you can really make more of an impact, I feel like, at that level because uh, they're still figuring out who they are as people, who they are as ball players, and so many different things that I, I would imagine, you know, especially just knowing how you are. And you used to come onto our field and uh, talk to us at Pinecrest. And, um, you know, I could just always tell that that was something you enjoyed. So it's not surprising to me to see you doing something similar now on the college scale and really excited uh, to, to see how it continues for you. I know we were talking about it before we recorded. You had the first uh, live ABs today uh, with the intra squad. And like we said, that's always advantage pitcher uh, because timing in baseball is not like riding a bike. It is not at all. If you haven't seen a live pitch in a couple of months, like most of these kids haven't, you know, they come out of their uh, summer ball seasons probably in July. So they have not seen a pitch ball 
going this fast in months. So you just can't replicate it. There's nothing that you can do to prepare for something like this. And sure enough, these pitchers have been thrown for weeks. We had a couple of guys throwing 94, 95 miles an hour with some nasty braking or uh, off-speed stuff. And no, thank our you. Guys got, our guys got embarrassed. That's all there is to it. <laughs> hey, and, and I told them, I said, listen, you're up there to try and start getting your timing back. Don't be afraid to take all five pitches. They got to see five pitches at a time. Uh, that's what I used to do. I'd get in there and I felt like such a, um, so far out of my element when I got back into a cage facing a live arm for the first time, I was just like, I'm going to take some pitches and try to get a, a semblance of timing back and then slowly get into it. Absolutely. And that, that's one of the things that if I were coaching, um, one of my little pet peeves, I feel like you're going to agree with this one is when it's three Oh, and these guys either one, which is the biggest eyewash thing in the world to me show the sack bunt. I never knew that. Like that's not going to, you're not going to mess the pitcher up. Uh, that that's the worst. And then second worst is they just stand there. Don't even load and just watch the ball go by. Cause it's three and oh, and they're taking all the way. Like that's a free pitch to, to get your timing down. If it's three, and oh, you didn't swing the entire AB. Like get your timing down. That one has always bothered me. I don't. I don't know where that comes from. I guess it's from watching the guys at the big leagues at three and zero. They're just standing there. But I'd be getting my timing down, right? That's a freebie. I always say there's there's an action on every pitch that's made in a baseball game. Whether you're in the outfield and even if the ball's not hit to you, there's some type of action that you should be having, and that's definitely something you can take advantage of because it's information. You're, you're doing everything on a baseball field for information and uh, to be able to see a pitch and to track it all the way in, that's information for myself to get ready for the next pitch. that's going to come. So I agree with you. And whether it's conscious or, or unconscious, your, your mind is tracking that for sure. I, I, I always, I always thought that was surprising. Uh, this one is a good one too, which I don't know if I've asked you this one either. So there's some good ones that I haven't asked you. Who are you the most starstruck by? when you first broke into the big leagues, actually, I think I know the answer to this one, uh, but I, it's interesting because you have said, you've said in the past, you weren't the biggest, biggest baseball fan growing up. And then you appreciated the game as you got closer to it and appreciated those figures within it. Who was the most impactful for you uh, when you were coming up? Um, I mean, most impactful or just uh, the biggest, the most like, wow, I'm sharing well, with that guy. Bo Jackson. I mean, I'm sitting next to Bo Jackson when I first get called up with the Royals. And, you know, this is when Bo was Bo and there was no bigger athlete on the planet than Bo Jackson at the time. And to be able to sit next to him and watch him work live, take batting practice, not with him, wasn't in his group, but watch him hit on a daily basis and watch him play and watch him throw and the things he could do that's probably the most awestruck I've ever been in front of any athlete. Um, and I've seen some great athletes perform in my life. And I've seen a lot of live things that I saw Jordan play in his prime and I saw LeBron play. And, uh, you know, I got to play against some of the greatest baseball players of all time, but both for me, just because I was so young and, and getting up there with the Royals at that time. And, and Bo was so huge at the time, as far as being able to play both sports and ad campaigns and Nike. And I was gonna say he was just the biggest name on the planet, as far as an athlete was concerned. And I got to sit next to him in a, in a clubhouse and on the bench, you know, and it was, uh, that was pretty special. I was going to say it's something about the, the the frequency of seeing his face, right? Where he's all over Bo knows the commercials. It makes him almost this fictional character. So then when you're sharing 
a clubhouse with him. That's pretty nuts. And he was also a hip replacement survivor, correct? Like you are now too. And he played through that. So what do you know now, given that you had to have that hip taken care of, how hard would it be to play through like a hip situation like that? I don't, did he get it? He got it replaced while he was playing right. Or before his career was over. It was replaced. Yeah. They, he had a necrotic hip hip, uh, injury because of that tackle. He he was uh, tackled on from behind. And um, I think literally that the the hip got jammed in there so bad that it it killed all the blood supply to the head of the femur. And they had to, they had to chop it off and replace it. So, you know, even Bo with a replaced hip was probably faster than 90% of the guys in the league. You know, it was crazy. Uh, but he did it quickly. He came back really quickly from it. You know, it's been um, three years since mine and I play tennis and I don't really notice it anymore. So That's I good. think back now where I am at this point, I'm thinking, yeah, I could go play baseball right now. But right after I had it, you know, thinking about rehabbing and getting right back on a baseball field, I, I couldn't have imagined oh. Uh, doing that at, at, at that point, especially when you're as explosive as, as he was. Uh, and he was probably, like you said, not only the biggest figure, but the best athlete, one of the best af- athletes ever, given that he ran a four, three or better than that uh, on a 40 yard dash and could hit the ball 450 feet. He also thought that he could beat you in racquetball. Um, and that's one of my favorite stories. Before we get to the next question, can you tell that story really quickly? Well, we're in spring training with the Royals and I went in the training room to get my shoulder stretched out or something like that. And Bo was going through a hip rehab at the time. He had not had surgery yet. I think he had just injured it the, uh, the off season of that prior year. <clears throat> and I'm just getting my, my own business, getting my shoulder stretched out. And he looks at me and he goes, Hey man, I heard you're pretty good at racquetball. And I'm like, yeah, I played some racquetball. And he's like, he goes, all right, I want to play you for some big money. And I'm like, what? I'm like, all right, what, you know, what's your idea of big money? Because your idea of big money and my idea at the time was a much different stratospheres of big money. So he just looked at me and threw, just picked a number out of the air. And he said, I don't know, 15 grand. And I'm like, you want to play me in racquetball for $15,000? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, all right. And I said, uh, how many points do you want? And he said, points. I don't want any points. I'll play you straight up. And I'm like, wait, what? Okay. All right. Um, So C-O-N-I-N-E is the last name on the check when you write that out, because (laughs) you will definitely be paying me, uh, especially if you don't want me to give you any points, because I don't care what kind of athlete you are. And it was obvious he'd never played racquetball before, but he just thought, hey, man, I'm the best athlete in the world. I'll pick it up. I'll get on the court and I'll, I'll wax your ass with it. So of course, it's one of those legendary stories that never come to fruition. Uh, unfortunately, you know, he went through his rehab for his hip and ended up getting his hip replacement, went to the White Sox, and uh, I never played with him again. Um, so it was an unfortunate that one of those awesome stories never actually happened. But it was proposed, and I asked him, hey, man, uh, you know, I was sponsored by Ectolon at the time, this racquetball company. I said, hey, you want me to get you a racket? And he goes, I don't want your racket. I'll get my own racket. I'll get it from Wilson or whatever. And Wilson at the time did not make rackets. So I'm like, all right, I really know that he does not know what he's doing on the racquetball court. So I was like drooling, thinking at the prospect of getting Bo Jackson on a racquetball court and actually being able to play him. But uh, unfortunately, it never happened. And I don't really ever hear you say you would win or like, you know, really be boastful at all. But what would the score have been? 
zero. He would not have scored a point. Yeah. And, and like for that, for you to say that I would be willing to wager $15,000 and I don't even have that. So that that's how difficult it is to be able to play a sport like that, that you haven't played, right? Like that well, you were, you were playing at an Olympic every, level. Everyone's played racquetball and you play with your buddies and you bang the ball around. It's great exercise. You get out there, you have a great time, but nobody's really seen pro racquetball played. So when you think about the speed of the ball in that tiny little courts, 40 by 20 um, at the time, at the time, um, you know, my forehand was clocked at 165 miles an hour. So <clears throat> when you haven't seen something go at you that fast in that short a time uh, uh, reaction time, it's just something you're not used to. And just the sheer speed of the ball traveling that fast is worth 21 points. Uh, I, I totally agree. And even something like ping pong, you look at the Olympians in ping pong. I, I think I'm pretty darn good at ping pong. We play at your house all the time. I mop the floor with Griffin. Uh, you would not, I wouldn't score, score a point. one point off them. Not I one, would, not one. And, and I know it. And, and I think that ping pong is probably my best. It might be my best thing <laughs> on this planet. It might be. And I'd get, absolutely mopped. So it is, it is crazy how that works, but that's one of my favorite stories uh, that uh, you have been able to tell me in the past. So I'm glad we were able to get that one out there too, to, to the listeners, but a, a couple more questions, uh, some fun ones in there too. I think it kind of ties in with Bo Jackson, but I think that he's not going to be the answer here. I think I know who the answer is going to be, uh, but what is one teammate? And this has nothing to do with, with whether you like them or not, but what was one teammate that you would never want to fight uh, because they were intimidating or you just eh, don't like your chances in that one or just they're unhinged. <laughs> um, I think this one's pretty easy. I, I got to go with Albert Bell. Yep, I mean, I knew it. I, I, I just picture him trucking the second baseman. I'm like, I, I don't want to touch that guy. Yeah. Vina, uh, Fernando Vina was that his name. Uh, it. it was going one of those balls going from first to second. And uh, he got the ball before Albert got there and he went to tag him and he's in the baseline and Albert Bell just gave him a forearm that knocked him into tomorrow. And he was just that guy. Like you said, he's, he's a little bit crazy, crazy enough to like, I do not want to find out what this guy, when he snaps, I don't want to find out what that's going to turn into because he's a huge dude. He was six, three, 240 pounds. I mean, this guy was a big physical imposing guy. And um, he was intense. He was an intense competitor. He was an intense athlete. Uh, he meant business every time he went on that baseball field and I wouldn't want to piss him off and find out what you're going to get. No way. Did he ever charge the mound? I don't know. That's don't one of those where I'm booking I was it. playing with him. I'm booking it to center field. I'm booking it to center field. If he charges the mound, I'm, I'm running yeah. the other direction. Yeah, I, I wouldn't challenge that at all because he was fast too. He probably he probably run you. Yeah, you, you, unreal. I mean, we talked about it in one of the really early episodes. How at his peak, those three four seasons, he was as good as anybody. He unfortunately four, dealt with injuries four. that cut I mean, him short. Yeah, three or four. There was eight or nine that were just eight or nine off the charts, like like Albert Pujols type ridiculous yeah. domination of, of a of a league. You know, this guy was. He had 50 doubles and 50 home runs in one year in a strike shortened season, which is insane. <laughs> that could have been 101 the seasons ever. He had 142 games. We only played 144 games that year, and he had 50 and 51 or something like that. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's never been done before. Unreal. And then another pretty pretty simple one. Best, most talented pitcher you've ever faced. It doesn't have to be the most difficult at bat. 
but just a guy where you're like, whoa, when you see that stuff come in. Um, I mean, I faced so many good ones. Um, I mean, when you, when you think about talent and being able to control and manipulate a baseball, Greg Maddox was as probably as gifted as you're going to get as far as a pitcher. You know, I, I think people don't realize that when Greg Maddox first came up with the Cubs, he had a pretty good arm. He was throwing 93, 94, 95 miles an hour, had some power to him. But as his velocity declined, he would throw 88 pitch complete games. And when you look at his stats and what he did year after year after year, um, his ERAs were minuscule. His walk totals were minuscule. This guy could pitch. I mean, really pitch with the best of them. And uh, it's funny when you look back at some of the highlights and I know that as kids, I don't know if you ever played with that thing called track ball where you had that uh, kind of the, the highlight looking uh, basket thing that you would throw a ball and it would curve like you would not believe. Greg Maddox could do that with a real baseball and the movement he could get on his fastball Uh, especially in the outside corner, you'd give up on it because you're like, no way that's a foot outside. And it would come back over the corner and you're sitting down because uh, he just struck you out. So talent wise of manipulating a baseball, uh, Greg Maddox could pitch. He had six different pitches that he could throw at any time. And he just invented stuff. It seemed as he went along in, in games, I only saw him at the tail end, uh, and so that was more when he was like upper eighties, maybe 90, 91, and I have as clear as day a memory. My dad just telling me he was probably 40 at that time. The Greg Maddox, like, this guy is so special. I'm just watch this guy. And that's why that's the only reason why I can remember Greg Maddox, because I just remember my dad saying, like, sit down and watch him um, like you'll you'll thank me later. And I'm thanking him now because I can say I watched him pitch. I remember watching him get to 300 and uh, do all the things that he did, even at, at that age, because he was able to just age like fine wine, given his just elite command. And like you said, the ability to manipulate baseballs, he faced 20,421 batters, only 644 of them reached a three Oh count. Think about that. 20,000 batters and only 600 reached <laughs> a 3-0 count. Now, now you got guys doing every other batters going 3-0. You know, it's just it's amazing uh, that somebody's able to put the ball from 60 feet, six inches away over that little tiny plate so consistently. Uh, that's something that and I feel like you, even though you stop pitching after college, it's got to give you like you have to have a different level of appreciation for some of these pitchers, given that you still did it at a very high level. Yeah. I mean, just go up on the mound one time and one of your kids games or something like that, you stand on that mound 60 feet, six inches away and you see how small that plate looks and what the glove looks like with a catcher holding it at a certain spot. And Greg Maddox could hit that thing at will anytime he wanted to. So the level of precision that he demonstrated on a nightly basis was unheard of. And, you know, pit or parents, I, you know, I encourage you to go out even on like a little league mound to go out there and see what these kids have to go through to put yeah. the ball in the strike zone. It's a tough thing to do. And, and you're all alone when you're yelling at the pitcher for not being able to throw a strike, get out there and look at it one time. And it's, it's tougher than it looks. Yeah. That's always my favorite or the, the fan in the stands uh, after someone swings at a, a ball in the dirt, like, what is this guy swinging at? Yeah, go up there and, and see what that pitch looks like out of the hand. And then uh, you'll find out what he was swinging at. He thought he was swinging at a strike. Uh, the problem was it, it dropped off the freaking table, uh, which is 
part of what makes baseball just just so damn hard. <laughs> and I don't think a lot of people realize uh, just how much goes into that and just how difficult it is to be able to to pick up those baseballs out of the hand, especially at that level um, with, with everything that these guys are capable of. Uh, one other one was who the best teammate was that you've ever had uh, just all around uh, best teammate. Oh, sure there's man. a ton of guys. We did the all team 18. Yeah, um, we did. But um, best teammate. And man, you got to single out, you know, one guy. I mean, you know, I just go, go back to, you know, to Rob Nen just because we're such good friends. Now we, we've stayed in touch with each other. We're uh, we, you know, we've traveled with each other and, and kind of whenever we can, we, we try to uh, get together in the off seasons and, and during the year now. And uh, he's just one of those human beings that you love being around. And that was in the clubhouse as well. And you love going to battle with that guy because in between, between the lines, he was as intense a competitor as you're ever going to find. But uh, outside the lines, he, you know, he's one of your best friends. So I always go awesome. with Nenner. And last one on the teammate front, most underrated teammate you ever played with in terms of his ability on the field. Uh, most just underappreciated. Like you got to see him behind the scenes every day. Uh, appreciate the contributions. Who's the most underrated? I mean, you look at, you know, we, you know, I've spoken about this guy before and, and what he's done and what he uh, did at a premier uh, defensive position is Mike Bordick at shortstop, you know, um, was not flashy. And when you look at the metrics and the, the zone ratings and all that crap, you know, you look at he probably wasn't ranked up there in the top of those categories. But this guy made every single routine play look easy. He made every single play look easy. And I think people uh, took that for granted. They just thought, you know, he's not flashy. He doesn't have a, a cannon for an arm. Um, he was a gamer beyond gamers and, and manned a position at shortstop uh, as well as anybody in baseball and never got recognized for it. I mean, we, we talked about his records that he set that year in 2001. I mean, 110 straight errorless games at shortstop, um, highest fielding percentage of all time in a season. He only made one error the entire year at shortstop. Uh, he handled more chances than anyone ever in a year and only made one error at shortstop. So one of the most uh, unheralded best seasons I've ever been a part of. And um, when you talk about teammates, class act, one of the the top, you know, he was on my all teammate team and uh, just a, just a classy dude that uh, never got uh, appreciated for how good he really was. Okay. So I'm pretty amazed right now looking at his, his page um, because I know we have some mixed opinions on war, but the one thing that it can do on occasion is, is be able to, or what it usually does is, is provide some good context as to a guy's defensive ability, at least because it's so hard to measure. Clearly if Mike Bordick's not getting a gold glove in his entire career, he didn't get a single gold glove. I know we talked about the year he should have got it. I look at defensive war. He's top 50 all time, top 50 all time in defensive war per baseball reference. I mean, that's, that's a guy that should win a gold glove or two. Wait, how does that happen? Well, we talked about it. It's just the, back then it was, oh, Viscale is playing, he gets the gold glove. That's what it was. They gave it to Omar Viscale pretty much every year. Uh, I don't know how many years in a row he won it. Um, 11, 13, I don't know how many he's got, 13 maybe, something crazy. But um, it just became such a, a foregone conclusion that, if Omar Vizquel played a season that he was going to get the gold glove. 
Uh, and then you've got uh, an outlier season like Bordecab that that deserved to be recognized with a gold glove and it didn't happen. It's just uh, it was a crying shame. Who do you think's the all time leader in defensive war? Uh, the hint I'll give you is uh, he you played the same time as him and shared an all star game with him. I'm going to say Barry Bonds in defensive, just defense, just defense, just defensive. Oh, um, Ozzy Smith. Boom. Forty four point two. And the next closest is 39.5, which is Mark Bellinger, who retired. Mark Belanger. Belanger, who retired in 1982. Yep. Played for the O's. Should I know who that is? Mark Belanger was a great, he was in the uh, player association. uh, So I, you know, he's more my era, obviously. Um, I don't think he hit much, but he was a phenomenal defender, obviously carried on that great uh, tradition of third baseman with the uh, Orioles. Hey, maybe war is not so bad. Yeah, maybe not so bad. <laughs> well, you, you'll actually get a kick out of this. So uh, on the TikTok, Peter and Jack on their podcast on the Just Baseball Show, they were giving some of their overrated, underrated players. And um, they gave some controversial takes because it's just supposed to. It's just fun. Uh, and people, the analytics people went nuts when they said Aaron Nola is overrated. Cause they're like, well, look at his ex-fip, look at his uh, whatever. And look at all of the, and I, I look at all of those things too. I still do, but I have never seen a brigade of just people coming after them. Just like you guys don't know baseball. You don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and I'm like, but we're watching him just miss his spots. Like that's what we're talking about right now. He's missing his spots. Like that's all it is. Uh, but I thought you'd get a kick out of that because the analytics brigade came in hot for Peter and Jack uh, and it was, it was ugly. It was ugly. <laughs> it was ugly. It well, was you know ugly. what side of the analytics, uh, argument I'm on, um, you know, we're, we're at the, uh, ballpark today and I got the radar gun out, you know, gunning some of our pitchers and it gives spin rate on the radar gun now. And, you know, one of our coaches is trying to explain to me that, you know, because it's 2,400 on the spin rate, that's actually, uh, it's only a 90 mile an hour fastball, but it looks like 92 when it comes in because of the perceived velocity. And yeah, that's blah, blah, blah. Crazy. And the next guy comes up there and I'm sitting right behind home plate, literally right behind the catcher with a screen up. And then the next guy comes up, he's throwing 90. Oh, but he's only got an 1800 spin rate. You know, I'm like, they look the same damn 90 mile an hour to me. You know, I'm looking, I'm sitting right there looking at them and I'm an ex hitter. I know I'm not standing in the box at the time, but I'm five feet behind them and 90 looks like 90 to me. So uh, I don't get it. Well, what's interesting is, is driveline was kind of the, the catalyst behind that. And uh, driveline was very intertwined with the reds uh, the last few years and their pitching development. And uh, they went separate ways as of about five days ago. Um, so I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it. The, the data does back up. Uh, if you have a high spin rate with high spin efficiency, that it just doesn't drop as much. So it does have that perceived rising action, but I think it's been overgeneralized now. And it's like, we're getting away from results a little bit because the giants on the flip side, they go after guys with low spin rates. So how many people are getting lost in between here? I just think it's really funny. It's, it's science, right? And science is always adapting. And I bet you the, the, soon enough, we'll find a different way uh, that that's a little bit better. That's a little bit different. And, and that's just the way it's become. It's become very scientific. And that's where the former players, I can understand where they're coming from when uh, they don't like 
baseball becoming scientific uh, because there's positives and there's negatives. And uh, I think we're seeing those um, every single day. And I think command issues are a big part of it uh, as we go in now. There's one other question that I think is an interesting one. And it's rough estimate. What percentage of players do you think were using PEDs at the peak of your playing career? You know, obviously that was asked of me a lot. I figured it was. It was asked of me a lot at that time. And and I don't know if I was just naive to um, what was going on in baseball at the time, because I never even considered it. I was never offered it. I was never like, hey, man, you should do this. I never worked out with anybody in the offseason that said, hey, I'm going to try this because look what happened last year. Yeah, you knew there are some guys that um, obviously you can't change your body in one off season, like some of these guys did, it's just impossible. You know, I, I talked to one of our strength coaches one time and I'm like, if I ate absolutely perfectly and I went in the weight room and I did everything just right, realistically, how much weight could I put on in one off season? And we're talking, you know, you end in October, you take a few weeks off. So it's November, December, January, we start spring training in February. So four months tops. And he goes probably eight pounds, Eight to 10 is what you could realistically put on if you just did everything perfectly and lifted like crazy. And these guys were coming back with 20, 25 pound gains, which it wasn't possible. It wasn't possible to do that in a, in a normal workout situation. You had to have help. So, you know, I've heard estimates of 50% or more, um, you know, that have been thrown around in books and, and players that have accused other players of doing it. And, you know, I don't, I don't ever remember it being that rampant in my recollection, not on the teams that I played on anyways. Um, yes, there were a few guys that I knew that were doing it, but it didn't seem that pervasive to me. So I would have guessed probably more in the line of 25% at the time. Um, but some people put it at much, much more than that. And it wasn't against the rules then, right? So it was not. So do you like at that point, you're not really thinking anything of it. You're just like, oh, those guys are willing to do that. I'm willing to just bet on my own ability and bet on my own body and training. Right. I mean, there wasn't like that guy's cheating, was it? No. I mean, um, I think there was, a you know, maybe under the breath type thing is like, oh, that, you know, it's drugs. You shouldn't be doing that. But oh, I agree. I, I fully agree. And the moral, the morality clause of your own person came into play there. And if you decided to do it or not, but it was not outlawed in baseball at the time. Yeah. Um, which is I an think interesting if, wrinkle in it all. If you remember the whole thing that kind of got it started was Mark McGuire had a su- supplement in his locker that was available at GNC. Anybody could have bought it. And a reporter asked about it one day and he just said, oh, it's a supplement that I use. And he researched it and basically said that that was a steroid that Mark McGuire was taking. And um, it blew up from there. And obviously Mark McGuire was, he blew up as well. I mean, he was yeah. massive. If you see him now compared to what he used to look like, he's half a person uh, of what he used to, what he was, but um, you know what? Um, that's, what I perceived it as being at that time. And, um, you know, I might've been naive to it, but I didn't see it as rampant as most, uh, some people reported. It, all I'll say on that is I, I met one player, uh, very briefly, just a handshake. Hello. Uh, in passing that had 
you know, infamously been tied to that. And I couldn't recognize him almost because of it looked like you could have fit three of him in his old body. And that's when I was like, okay, not only just at the head, the ne- everything, it's just, it was, it was abnormal. Um, and then it just looked like almost a third of what he used to be. And that's where I was like, okay, now I can see why. And where I think the line has to be drawn there is that you wanted to take care of your body because we know about the long-term effects and not all of the long-term effects of, of taking PEDs. Why should somebody have an advantage because they care less about their long-term health than maybe you do? And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in those rules. Uh, the last question is actually a Jeff Conine trivia question uh, that I have for you. And it is, what is your longest hitting streak of your career and what year was it? <sighs> Uh, I'm going to say it, this was some kind of streak too. I'll say that it, like the, during this duration you raked. I'm going to say it was probably in the teens, maybe 14, 15 games. And I'm going to say 94, 16 games, 97, 97. Oh, beginning of the season, maybe. Yep. Right at the start. And you absolutely mashed. But, oh, actually, this was a trick question. This was a trick question. And and honestly, it, it counts, though. I didn't even realize it was a trick question until I just looked at the dates. It carried from the end of 96 into the beginning of 97. Oh. You carried over. You had the classic over a year almost hit streak, like six-month hit streak. Uh, but you were in that duration. It was September 21st, 1996 to July or to 97. It was May 11th. So all the way around or May, April or May. I always miss the fourth month, April, April 11th. So September 21st to April 11th would be the dates. 56 at bats or 25 for 56, 446 wow. batting average. Yeah. Even you were like, whoa, That's pretty good. <laughs> four homers, nine K's, eight walks. That thing was coming in like a beach ball, I guess. Hey, I was never one to get deep in accounts. If they threw a strike early on, I'm putting it in play most of the time. The second longest, 14 games, again, early in the season. This one didn't carry over between dates that are going to confuse me. Uh, This was May, actually May this time, May 10th to May 30th. You also went 23 for 54 in that one, 426 batting average. And you had, which is also pretty impressive, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different hitting streaks of at least 10 games. Did you know that? Did not know that. Usually you're good. Usually you get these. So I'm glad I I got something that you you didn't know because you get on base and then you get a hit in another game. It's hard to remember how many games in a row you actually got a hit. Yeah, no, no. I didn't really keep track of those. You knew when you were going well um, and then you might've gotten out and then hit starting another one right away. You know, it was one of those, um, you you just tried to extend those as long as you possibly can, but I had no idea I had that. How often did you have a stat and like asked you in a question like, oh, you've done this over this. Uh, how do you feel about it or what's going on? And you had no idea that. and you I had no that. idea you hated it. Well, I mean, I remember one reporter came up to me. I think it was the first. Maybe it was the one of my first season. They said, you know, that if you go whatever it is for whatever it is, the next three games, you're going to hit 300. 
And I'm like, what? Why? No, I hate questions like that. Yeah. I'm trying to forget about focusing on stats and, and numbers like that. And the reporters are in your face going, if you go five for your last eight, you're going to hit 300 in the season and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh man, I hated stuff like that. What do you think about the, the number thresholds balancing that? And this is the last thing I'll ask you, because of course you want to hit these milestones. You want to do you want to do things that you can be proud of. Of course, the ultimate goal is winning, but when you look back on things, it's cool to have uh, a 300 batting season or, or whatever it would be, but something that always, it bothers me more than it should. Jose Reyes, when he won the batting title, dropped the bunt down and then got the hit and then took himself out of the game. Like you'd never do that. Right. Never, ever, ever. I was actually approached by Renee Latchman in 1995. He came up to me in the last series of the year and I had gotten a hit in the first game and my average went over 300. And he's like, Hey man, we're not playing for anything. I'm going to let you. I'm like, what? You're no, no, you're not taking me out of the game so I can hit 300 on the season. There's no way. So I ended up doing it myself. I ended up hitting, I got more hits the next couple of games and 95. I don't know if I hit 302 or 303 or something like that, but I wanted it to do on my terms. If I struck out for eight times in a row and the season and I went to 299. That's what you did. That's what 299. That's your season. That's what you did. I, yeah. That's that's the craziest that's thing to me. You're not taking me out so I can get a number. I mean, yeah, I always wanted the goal of hitting 300 or better. That was something I wanted to do, but I'm not going to fabricate it by taking time off just so I can get yeah. that number done. That one, oh, I don't know why that that owns more real estate in my head than it should, um, but I, I like that take story. on it. Here's a quick story that I was with George Brett when he won his last batting title and Ricky Henderson was battling with him to, for the batting title. <clears throat> We're in a game in Kansas city and it's late in the game. Neither of us are really playing for anything, but you know what? You're in the big leagues. You're trying to win games. John Wathen was our manager. It was the seventh inning. Obviously, Ricky Henderson is one of the hottest hitters on the planet because he's hitting 320, whatever it was, battling for the, uh, the batting title. So there's a guy in second, and we decided to walk Ricky Henderson with a guy in second base, and it was a tie game. So Ricky Henderson stands there, and he's looking into our dugout while the pitches are going by. <laughs> And no. he drops the bat and he walks a big circle by our dugout. And he's screaming on our manager that if we're afraid of him winning the batting title or, or George Brett, just take him out of the game. He goes, if you're scared, take him out of the game. If you're scared, take him. Cause we thought that we walked, he thought that we walked him because we didn't want him to overtake George for the batting title. <laughs> but at the same time, you're like, you know, you could make it out too. And you go the other way. We're yeah. Not, we're giving you free base because well, that's not crossing game on the line and you're the best hitter in the lineup right now. We don't want you to drive in that run, but he thought it was because we wanted to take him out of the play because George was over three that night or something like that. We didn't want him to get another hit. So I thought that was <laughs> hilarious that he would think that, that we uh, wanted to walk him so he wouldn't win the batting title from George. That's unreal. I mean, anybody that says today I'm the greatest of all time, Hey, you got to, that kind of comes with the territory, but Ricky endless stories there too. Such a good personality. 
No, Ricky was great. I mean, he was one of my coaches at the end, at the very end with New York. Uh, he was a very personable guy. You know, I love Ricky as a person. Great and, for and baseball, just, honestly. I, I mean, geez, there was no more electric player to watch in all of baseball than Ricky Henderson when he was on the baseball field. And, and funny enough, that's like the opposite attitude of, of what we were talking about with Jose Reyes, because he wants to hit. He's like, come after me. I'm going to get a hit and I'm going to catch him. Give me a chance to hit. Not yep. I'm going to get out of here and uh, not mess up. And that that's the thing is <laughs> Ricky might've been a little out of line, but I, it, it's coming from a place of, I know that I will catch him if you give me the chance, uh, which I remember again, something my dad had told me was Pete Rose. When he was on that hitting streak, people stopped pitching to him. And he's like, come on, pitch to me. Like I'm trying to do something here. And I think he finished, he lost a streak cause he went zero for one with like two walks. <laughs> so that, that would piss me off way more uh, than the Ricky situation. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just a lot different now. And then speaking of hitting streaks, that'll never be broken uh, ever, 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 ever. Uh, I don't even know if we'll see somebody go past Luis Castillo's threshold. Uh, 16 is, is really impressive in today's game. Even, I mean, it, it's, it's so hard to do, but I'm glad we were able to rattle off all these questions. Uh, if there's more, if you didn't get a chance to get yours in, we can always squeeze in a question or two on the other episodes or it can ex- inspire a topic uh, ahead. But I'm excited because we're finally getting to the point where we can get to the Bartman story. We're finally getting to the point where the playoff picture is going to be decided pretty damn soon. And I'm excited for what that means um, and a, a lot of fun stuff ahead. But this was a very fun one. Thank you for uh, making your day a little bit longer after a day out in the sun at practice. And uh, we will do this again later in the week. Sounds great. Yeah. Thanks for all the questions, uh, everybody. Um, I, lo- I love talking about, you know, experiences that I had. And if people are curious about something, uh, these are fun stories to tell. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know people are really enjoying it. The feedback's been awesome. And if you can leave a rating on the podcast, I haven't said that yet. Leave a rating. uh, If you're enjoying it, uh, that helps us a lot too. Uh, We will talk to you on Thursday or Friday. We'll figure out when they're going to put that one out, but keep an eye on Twitter. Sounds good.